Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. Jim, what's tonight's episode? Eric, superfans, welcome back. We are going to pick up with part two of Remember Chambersburg with historian and colleague Tracy Bear. Now, in part one, we picked up the early history of Chambersburg, including the Chambers Brothers tag team, Chambersburg during the early stages of the Civil War, 1862, and some early occupation. We will pick up part two with the tumultuous year of 1863 and beyond. So stay tuned for part two of Remember Chambersburg with Tracy Bear. But before we do that, do we have any housekeeping to, uh, to take care of? If superfans want to find us on social media or our online presence in general, you can go to Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, and you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our official store website. And Jim, I think you have a little bit more about that. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I do. Our official store website, one word, the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. You know and I know that Battle of Gettysburg Podcast super fans are among the best in the country. They're well-read. They know Gettysburg. They've been through hard times with us, and they like to dress with style when they hit the battlefield. So, folks, visit the website, thebattleofgettysburgpodcast.com, for all of your podcast swag needs. Once again, that's thebattleofgettysburgpodcast.com. And we thank you for your support and hope to see you there. Two other ways real quick to help out the show. You can send us a one-time donation or a repeat donation if you'd like on our PayPal account at paypal.me backslash Gettysburg Podcast. Or if you would like to give a small recurring or a large recurring donation to the show, you can donate through our Patreon page, which is located at www.patreon.com dot com backslash Gettysburg podcast. We are back at Getty's Gear. Now, as you all know by now, Getty's Gear is located at 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village, across from the Tour Center, right opposite Cemetery Hill. Getty's Gear, as we know by now, is located on good ground. Very good ground. And you guys know the drill. They offer cigars, high-quality products at reasonable prices. They give you great customer service. Carrie and Ray and the whole Getty's Gear team love it when you stop by and you talk podcast with them. So if you're in Gettysburg, stop by. Where again is that address? I said it's 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village. But if you can't stop by, you can order online. And one of the easiest ways to do that is email them at info at gettysgear.com for expedient order processing, or do it the old-fashioned way. Pick up your phone and give them a call at 717-334-3747. As always, tell them that the Battle of Gettysburg podcast sent you. Getty's Gear, history with a sense of style, and as we like to say on the show, that's the style. And speaking of styling and profiling, I believe our guest is here. So let's uh, move into part two of Chambersburg with our colleague, Tracy Bear. 
Tracy, welcome back. You now brought us up to 1863. Lee's summer campaign into Pennsylvania is about to get underway. Tell us what's going on in Chambersburg. Well, specifically in Chambersburg, there's a new Union Army command. And this is a man that had been with the Army of the Potomac for some time, and he sent in his resignation after the Battle of Chancellorsville, this being Major General Darius Couch. The reason he's in Chambersburg is because there have been two new departments, military departments, formed primarily because of Governor Curtin's feelings that, again, Chambersburg, not necessarily Chambersburg specifically, but Pennsylvania being the gateway to the north, Chambersburg being a gateway of Franklin County right up that corridor that Jeb Stewart used the year before. We need to organize military departments in Pennsylvania, he thought. And he created on June 10th of 1863, the Department of the Monongahela, which essentially was commanded by General Brooke from Pittsburgh, but it encompassed the area west of the Tuscarora Mountains. And if you were tuned in for part one when I discussed the border of Franklin County being North Mountain on the west, so those are the Tuscaroras considered, so essentially from there westward. The other department that was formed was the Department of the Susquehanna. That was the eastern portion of the state, and it was commanded by Darius Couch. Uh, Couch made his main headquarters in Harrisburg, being the state capital that was very uh, convenient for him, but he also utilized the Cumberland Valley Railroad to get to Chambersburg, where he essentially had an office as well for his headquarters. Now, Couch. His command would be a little questionable and tricky simply because he seemed to be more of a commander of men on paper than in reality. He had upwards of 37,000 men uh, from Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, but most of them were sent other places where they were needed. Some of these men were also militia, New York State National Guardsmen, and they were stationed around Harrisburg protecting that area. Eventually, Darius Couch would have a small contingent of men in the Chambersburg area, and I I honestly don't think it was ever more than a few hundred at a time. Leading up to General Lee's Pennsylvania invasion, it certainly wasn't that many. Uh, He had a number of men in Harrisburg, but that's where they more or less were confined to coming down the Cumberland Valley as far as Chambersburg, he may have had several dozen, one of which was the New York Cavalry, the first New York Cavalry, the Lincoln Cavalry. This cavalry unit was commanded by Colonel McReynolds. Initially, it was uh, formed and commanded by a Gettysburg man, Carl Schertz. Schertz left rather rapidly and was taken over by McReynolds. And in September of 1861, a new unit of men from the Philadelphia area was formed as Company C of the 1st New York. And this was the only Pennsylvania unit. There was a Michigan unit from Grand Rapids as well. But this was the only Pennsylvania unit in the 1st Lincoln Cavalry. And one of the individuals who was in that unit was a man by the name of Corporal William Ryle. Corporal Ryle joined at the age of 19, and we don't have an image of Corporal Ryle, but he was described as being average height and fair-complected, blue eyes, and a patriotic boy. 
patriotic man. He signed up, ready to go, fight for his country. And this is an individual whose name a lot of people don't recognize. They don't know. But they will come to know him essentially because of what happened to him as General Lee began moving the Army of Northern Virginia northward. Yeah, and just as we pause here for a second, I would like to make our second Ken Burns reference here for this very special Chambersburg episode. Because, come on, Darius Couch, at least one listener out there is thinking, Darius Couch or Darius Cooch? And let the record show on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, we say Darius Couch. So now that we have clarified our official position on that most important of matters, Tracy, how does Corporal Ryle really fit into this Gettysburg campaign, and why is he important here? Well, when General Lee begins moving his army northward, the first units to cross the Potomac River make their way through Maryland and cross that very symbolic Mason-Dixon line in the Northern Territory uh, were Brigade of Cavalrymen under General Albert Gallatin Jenkins. And this occurred on the 15th of June of 1863. Jenkins would make his way up the Valley Turnpike, right up through the towns of Greencastle and Marion, finally ending up in Chambersburg. At the same time, Darius Couch has this unit of men under Captain William Boyd that included Company C and Corporal Ryle, and they're making their way back down the Cumberland Valley from Harrisburg. So you might think they're on a collision course, but it's going to be a week before they actually make contact. Jenkins is in Chambersburg on the 15th, and he's doing what he does best. He's foraging. He's rounding up free blacks. This is one of the early areas where they are actually rounding up the free blacks on northern soil and sending them south. Jenkins is doing that this early on. He's also doing some reconnaissance, and word gets back to him that a large contingent of Yankee troops are seen north of Chambersburg, heading southward. Well, we don't know who these men are. They could be remnants of Milroy's men from Harper's Ferry, still making their way out of the area. It could be just local civilians, you know, making their way out of it. It wasn't Union troops. But it served to give notice, I guess, to Jenkins that, hey, we need to be cautious here. We're kind of exposed out in front of the rest of the army. So Jenkins recalled his men back 11 miles south to Greencastle, and he waited. He waited for the infantry to arrive, and the 1st Infantry was Rhodes' division under General Ewell's 2nd Corps, approximately eight 9,000 men with artillery as well. And one of the things that Jenkins was able to do while in Chambersburg was take a captive. He took a man that was associated with the Union Army and captured him, and like any good prisoner would do, you give misinformation. You try to mislead your opponent, and that's exactly what he did. So this man, a man by the name of Appenzeller, he told Jenkins and Rose, well, look, you have about twenty to 30,000 Union troops making their way from Harrisburg under General McClellan right now. What are you going to do? Okay, That's all it took. It really caused General Rhodes to be cautious as well. So on the 22nd of June of 1863, Rhodes arrives in Greencastle, and he begins to throw up a, a defensive position on the northern edge of Greencastle on a ridge line overlooking some farmland to the north 
the Franklin Railroad is right off to his right, running north-south. Right adjacent to that is the Valley Turnpike, running north and south. And off in the distance, there's a slight bend to the left in the turnpike. And right inside that bend is a farm owned by Archibald Fleming. It's just on the southern side of the Fleming farm on each side of the road and the railroad embankment as well in the grain fields. General Jenkins sets up an ambush. Rhodes sends him out there almost like a skirmish line. So General Jenkins sets up an ambush, dismounts his men, hides them along the railroad bank and in the fields south of the Fleming farm. And, well, if you're going to have an ambush, if you're going to have a trap, what do you need? You need a bait. Right? So the bait turns out to be a company of men from the 14th Virginia. And this cavalry unit rides northward up the Valley Turnpike a short distance until they see this unit of Yankee cavalry under Captain Boyd, including Corporal Ryle. And Captain Boyd sees the Confederates and gives chase. Okay, well, now the chase is on. What do we do? Well, the 14th Virginia has instructions, get around that bend behind the Fleming farm, dismount, and join this ambush. So as they go around the bend, they're out of sight. Captain Boyd is following as quickly as he can, and I might add right here, Captain Boyd's company of men only numbers 35 at this point. So they don't have a large force. It's more of you know, a curb feeler, if you will, putting out there and trying to see what the heck's going on. But as they lose sight of the 14th around the Fleming farm, Boyd slows down his men, and they pull in north of the house owned by Flemings and occupied by the Fleming family while this is going on outside. And what Boyd is doing is just pausing and trying to see what the heck is happening around him. And he can see in the distance, less than a half a mile away to the south, this ridge line where Rhodes is starting to deploy his men. He can see artillery being placed up there as well. So Boyd is no doubt at this point saying, well, look, I'm making mental note of this. I need to get this back to couch in my, in my superiors right now. This is vital information. Well, while this is going on, for some unknown reason, two of Boyd's troopers just meander away from the cover of the Fleming house. And they're now at the edge of the road. With that, the trap is sprung. And the Confederates hiding in the railroad embankment in the trees and in the fields begin to open fire. Musket shots ring out. Some of the bullets, the mini balls, are smashing through the, the window panes in the Fleming farm, in the house where the, the family is, is holed up. And with that, two men fall, shot from their horses. Captain Boyd says, this is enough for me, I'm out of here. The rest of his small contingent ride up the road, and they don't stop till they get to Shippensburg, up beyond Chambersburg but they have this useful information. So with the conclusion of that very, very brief skirmish, one of the daughters of Archibald Fleming runs from the home, trying to lend assistance to these two fallen Yankee troopers, and she can see immediately one of them is dead, lifeless, lying in the road. She runs over to the other one, who is moaning. This is Sergeant Milton Cafferty. He is shot in the leg. He's too severely wounded to be taken prisoner by the Confederates. So he is left there, and he is left in the care of the Fleming family initially, but then he will be cared for by a Dr. Carl in Greencastle until he is well enough to go back into service. The Confederates, they approach the lifeless body of 
Corporal William Ryle. First man who will be killed, first Union trooper to be killed on free soil in the war. They strip him of valuables, buttons from his, his jacket, his holster and his sidearm, his saber, his boots, most likely his hat. And then they bury him in a shallow grave right there along the road. And you know, he he's kind of a lost person. We don't think about him. We don't know of him. But the importance he played, you know, you can argue, where were the first shots of Gettysburg fired? Was it by Marcellus Jones west of town? Was it by the, the Virginia troopers who shot George Washington Sando on the Baltimore Pike? Was it Corporal William Ryan on the 22nd of June of 1863? So now we have really the path cleared for Yule and his corps to keep moving up towards Chambersburg. And this is now going to lead us to what we're going to call the second Confederate occupation of Chambersburg. And Tracy, I think you got some information on that and really how it's going to relate to ultimately what happens here at Gettysburg. Yeah, Eric, and I, I think we need to just take a brief moment and, and understand one of the big reasons why Lee is moving his army into Pennsylvania. You know, there's debates as to all the different reasons, the rationale, why this is taking place. And in, in my heart, just because I'm a resident of Chambersburg and Franklin County, I see one of these reasons a little more clearly or, or emphasize it a little more than most people probably do. And that's the, the fact that General Lee needs to feed his army because the Southern government can't do it. I mean, this stretches back to Antietam, that he's having hard times feeding his army. Chancellorsville, it certainly reared its ugly head. And Lee understands the value of the Cumberland Valley. You know, you alluded to it earlier, Eric, about the mountains concealing his movements. But what's between those mountains? It's a giant Costco, okay? It's a giant grocery store. And Lee can feed and supply his army as he, as he wants, as long as he's protecting those mountain passes and he's undisturbed and undisclosed. So Chambersburg and Franklin County are hit very, very heavily. And it's mostly by General Yule because he's what? He's in the lead. He has the pickings, right? He can choose what he wants. And he begins to gather and collect. Uh, Ewell will arrive in Chambersburg on the 24th of June. And he will put up a temporary headquarters uh, just a couple of buildings north of the courthouse, north of the town square. And he's only there for a short period because he moves his headquarters north of town near a uh, property owned by a, a, a Mennonite church. There's open fields and plenty of room. And this is actually just slightly north of A.K. McClure's Norland. But it's in the same general area, and it's located right on the Valley Turnpike. So he has access to that uh, all-vital road that's going to carry him to the doorstep of the, of the state's capital eventually. But Yule will arrive about 10.30 in the morning on the 24th. Rhodes, again, arrives first. We know he was already in Greencastle. And Rhodes will, again, be followed by uh, General Johnson. Remember, Yule's Corps has three divisions. Well, where's the third one? General Early is going to cross the Potomac River at another location, not Williamsport, like these two did. And then he's going to make his way up towards Waynesboro in the southeastern corner of Franklin County before turning northward, uh, continuing up through the small communities of Quincy and Mont Alto and arriving 
at Greenwood on that Chambersburg to uh, Gettysburg Turnpike, where he will turn east. And we're going to talk about early a little bit later, but back to Chambersburg. Ewell's men will be, by the following day, uh, ready to move northward, continue pushing northward. But they continue to gather and take whatever they can. And you have to understand that these men aren't limited to what's in the buildings and houses right along the road. They're stretching in. Now, in anticipation of this, General Lee issues General Order Number 72. And in a nutshell, that simply says, be respectful while you're in here. Don't take anything from the private civilians, private citizens. Take military needs only. This is really directed to his ordinance, his medical, his subsistence, and his commissary departments. And those officers are supposed to pay for whatever they take. Well, we certainly know that it doesn't limit it to that. We have uh, reports of, of the privates and the soldiers just, you know, taking what they can, what they want. They're hungry. You know, they're shoeless. They want clothing. They want what they can. And at the very least, they know what has been happening in Virginia for the previous two years. So they're not feeling too bad about it, right? So they are spreading out. And a portion of General Ewell's foraging parties make it as far west as Fulton County, and that is George Stewart's brigade of, of men, before linking back up with Rhodes' men uh, heading northward and Johnson's men heading northward towards Carlisle and ultimately towards Harrisburg. Hey, Tracy, you mentioned in part one that in 1862, when Jeb came to town, you know, the town fathers came out and they met him and they made, basically made arrangements and that sort of thing. And maybe you're going to get to it with the, the basically the entire infantry of the Army of Northern Virginia coming through here in 1863. But I'm just wondering, does anything similar happen in 1863? Does McClure or any of these guys come out and meet with the, with the Confederate brass? And, you know, is there any requisitioning of the town going on and things like that? Well, if they do, it's certainly not to the extent of 1862. In fact, McClure has made himself scarce. He's in Harrisburg. Okay, he left his wife here, but he's in Harrisburg. And, you know, we so often hear of, during this campaign, how, and, and Gettysburg is a prime example, how people affiliated with any type of, uh, of government, whether it be on local, state, federal levels, they disappear. They make themselves scarce. So. If it did happen, it was on a much more played-down scale that I'm not aware of. Uh, it's one of those things, however, that the civilian population are probably saying, well, we've been through this again. Here we go again. What do we expect this time? Well, this time, they are losing more valuables. They are losing more possessions, uh, more food. Their pantries are cleaned out, their smokehouses, certainly losing uh, livestock. Uh, it's believed that Franklin County lost a great deal of livestock, but in Pennsylvania, totaled during the, the Pennsylvania campaign, Yule's Corps alone took between forty-five and 50,000 head of livestock. So that all plays into how, how it's going to affect the civilian population for the upcoming year. You know, are they going to have enough food to eat? Are they going to have the beasts of burden they need to, to till their soil? Uh, in addition to that, they take in excess of 20,000 horses. So Franklin County gets hit pretty darn hard by this, you know, and it is going to affect them in other ways as well because 
here at Gettysburg, what do we what do we know about fences being destroyed? Yeah, it's the same thing. Fields and fences, anywhere these armies camp, they're having an impact. Now, one thing that happens that didn't happen in 1862 with Jeb Stuart was Albert Gallatin Jenkins leading Confederate forces northward, kind of as that reconnaissance out in front, that scout, you know, that radar. They arrive in Scotland, and what do they find there? They find the still in operation Cumberland Valley Railroad Bridge over the uh, over that big ravine that the Cum- that the Conicajig Creek flows through. And they lay waste to it. Now, it is partially stone and iron, so they can't destroy it completely. But they definitely, definitely have an impact on the viability of the railroad for this upcoming couple of of summer months. Jenkins then continues northward, and General Ewell will will leave Chambersburg and continue to follow Jenkins' advance. And on the 26th of June... After Ewell makes his way out of town, another corps arrives. A.P. Hill, the third corps for the Army of Northern Virginia, arrived in Chambersburg. But riding with A.P. Hill is none other than General Robert Edward Lee. Now, there's a famous illustration of General Lee meeting on horseback A.P. Hill in the center of Chambersburg at the town diamond. In fact, we are so proud of it. We have a star implanted in the blacktop in the square. And the local legend is that this is where General Lee decided to turn his army eastward to face the arriving Union troops at Gettysburg. Of course, we know that's not true. He turned his army eastward. He turned A.P. Hill's corps eastward. Ewell is still going north, but this is well before June 28th, when he knows where the the AOP is located. So he is just trying to cover his bases and spread out. A.P. Hill will head east of town using the Chambersburg-Gettysburg Road and end up somewhere around the Fayetteville region. Following him very closely is going to be the First Corps, General James Longstreet. He arrives in Chambersburg that same day, the evening of the 26th. Longstreet will camp at General Ewell's former ground around the Mennonite Church north of Wilson College, where Wilson is today, north of A.K. McClure's Norland, and they will spend the day there until the 30th, when they began to move eastward as well. Going back to the meeting that we have with Lee and Hill in the square of Chambersburg, and this is you know, one of the challenges sometimes being a historian. You read something, and you can't ever remember where you, where you read it from, but you know when Lee and Hill are there, a crowd will form in the square to see, you know, mostly Lee, this very famous individual at this point. And for the life of me, I cannot remember where I, where I remember reading this, but there was an account that actually a photographer was trying to make his way in to get the photo. By the time it does, it it kind of breaks up, so he never gets what could have been maybe a really cool photo of the Gettysburg campaign. But you did bring actually a wonderful en- engraving that was done of Lee and his staff in the square of Chambersburg. It's entitled General Lee and Staff in the Public Square of Chambersburg, Lee and Hill in Council from a Crayon by Professor Dice. So, you know, we do have an image of this. We'll actually put this up on our social media so our listeners can see this because I think it's a really cool image here. So we're glad you brought this by. Yeah, and it is. If you if you actually stand 
in the square of Chambersburg and look at this, the star that's implanted in the blacktop is pretty close to where that is represented in that drawing. So, Tracy, Longstreet says in his report that he's actually going to be in Chambersburg for rest for about two days. Now, traditionally, as historians, we always understand that during this time, Lee is then going to make his headquarters in what is known as Messersmith's Woods. Obviously, now as you start to roll into June 28th, and this would, by the way, be a nice segue to one of one of our earlier episodes, which was June 28th, which we considered a critical day. And so Chambersburg is going to become the focal point for one of the campaign's most critical decisions. Harrison, the scout, the spy, the actor, whatever you want to call him, comes into camp, Messersmith's Woods gives Robert E. Lee a critical piece of intel that is going to form Lee's movements, basically, for, you know, for that are going to lead into the battle. So tell us about what happens. Okay. Well, Jim, with, with General Lee instructing Hill to turn eastward, Lee did that as well. So Messersmith's Woods is actually east of what was then the main portion of the town. And it's located on the south side of Route 30, the Chambersburg-Gettysburg Turnpike. Uh, for anybody who is familiar with the area, it's right behind where the Pizza Hut is today, right across from the Walgreens. Did so, Lee stop at the Pizza Hut? Well, I'm there? not sure. I'm not sure. You know, he's one of those guys that probably, I can't picture him sitting down with a, with a big pan pizza and, and wings, but he he could have. Well, you know, it, that maybe that explains the digestive well, issues that, that Lee's having in the Gaysburg campaign. Could so. have been a bad piece of sausage. Who knows? So Lee sets up camp in Messersmith's Woods in that approximate area. Again, it's it's a location now occupied by the Lincoln Cemetery. And, and at that location, on the evening of June 28th, he receives a visitor that Jim alluded to, Harrison the spy, the actor, whatever you want to refer to him as, he was really employed by James Longstreet. And Longstreet, remember, he's camping on the north side of town. That's where his unit is. But undoubtedly, Longstreet is going to make his way to to Lee's headquarters just to be in council with him there. So this is where Lee receives that vital piece of information or actually two pieces of information. Number one, the approximate location of the AOP, now being in Maryland, no longer in Virginia, closer than Lee had anticipated. And number two, the new commander of the Army of the Potomac, General George Gordon Meade, takes place right behind the pizza. And to me, this is, we call it a critical day. And when you look at the Gettysburg campaign up to June 28th, Lee has had all the initiative in this campaign. Lee is driving all the action. June 28th is the moment that Lee begins to react to the Union Army. And I would argue he loses the initiative that he will never regain again in the Gettysburg campaign. So it's I think that's why it's so important that it's no longer Lee driving the action. Lee is now responding to George B. and the Army of the Potomac. So I think we cannot understate how important this moment is in how the campaign is going to develop. Yeah, Eric, and, and you know, at this point, we have probably, I didn't really run the numbers ever, but I'm just guessing 75 to 80% of the Army of Northern Virginia has either passed through or is currently in Franklin County. Ewell now moving up 
through Cumberland County, Stewart being off to the right somewhere, you know, they're really the only ones not in this area. And Lee finds himself spread out for nearly 60 miles. So again, he has to react. And this is what's going to start driving his decisions to where he wants to concentrate his army. As he does that, and as he starts pushing A.P. Hill a little further to the east on the other side of Fayetteville, ultimately to Greenwood, Longstreet begins following, pursuing, if you will, the same path that Hill had taken. And because, again, where's Jeb Stewart? The only cavalry that Lee really has available to him right now is going to be the independent command of John Imboden. And Imboden's still to the west, okay? So Lee is now forced to leave someone behind in Chambersburg as a rear guard. Well, why does he have to leave him in Chambersburg? Well, because you have the network of roads and you have these wagon load after wagon load of supplies that are making their way down the Valley Turnpike to Virginia. I often call the Cumberland Valley the artery that General Lee has to maintain communications, supplies going down, ammunition coming up, reinforcements, whatever. He wants to utilize that, that valley and that road network that's there. So, yeah, he is now beginning to react. Uh, and it is then that same evening of June 28th that he will ultimately recall Yule from the Harrisburg area. Yeah, so I think a lot of big, momentous decisions there. And I think sometimes we are so Gettysburg-centric that we think that really all the major action happens here on three days in July, and we forget that this is almost a two-month military campaign, which only a fraction of it is in actually in Adams County proper. So I think kind of hopefully this is a way to give our listeners a better sense of this bigger picture. So, Tracy, obviously a lot of big decisions going on here, and you touched on it a little bit in terms of somebody having to be left behind, and that's going to turn out to be George Pickett, which is also going to have critical ramifications on the Battle of Gettysburg. But before we leave Pickett behind, I think we've got some lead elements that we need to move out here. Yeah, Jim, I alluded to uh, this earlier, the the 3rd Division of Yule being uh, General Jubal Early. He came up from Waynesboro up through the eastern side of Franklin County, uh, ended up at Greenwood along the Chambersburg-Gettysburg Turnpike, where he turned eastward. Now, he is making his way towards Cashtown. Ultimately, he will arrive in in Gettysburg on the 26th when Hill and, and Longstreet arrive in Chambersburg. But on his way to Gettysburg, at the base, the western base of South Mountain, lies and Ironworks, the Caledonia Ironworks, owned by radical abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens. Now, Stevens claims that Caledonia Ironworks was was a less than viable operation when this is going on, but it certainly is is worthy of keeping uh, keeping men there. It would seem in operation, and it started in 1837 after. His first venture in the area in the iron business at Mariah Furnace on South, on, on South Mountain below Monterey Pass near Fairfield uh, actually failed. So in 1837, the Caledonia Iron Works begins. And there are still remnants, as you, you can see, up along Route 233 of the pits where they mine the ore. But what was going on was a very large operation in 1863. The manager of the Ironworks was a man named John Sweeney. On June 16th, 
1863, Thaddeus Stevens was actually visiting the ironworks. Now, keep in mind, June 16th, well, the day before Jenkins crossed the Potomac, he's in Chambersburg. So Jenkins isn't far away, and he's setting, sending riders out. Some of those riders are actually approaching Caledonia. And John Sweeney went running into the office, warning Thaddeus Stevens, hey, we have Confederate riders approaching. So Stevens jumps in a buggy and heads northward towards Shippensburg, narrowly escaping. Who knows what would have happened if he would have been captured. He may not have gotten off so easily as, as Alexander McClure did a year earlier. A week later, June 25th, Jubal Early is going to arrive at those ironworks, and he demands right away, I want all the company stores, all the supplies, all the food, all the animals. And he's also going to start taking the iron, the iron bars that are, are being formed there in the, in the smelting furnace. Why? Because the Confederates need horseshoes, and this stuff is ideal for horseshoes. So he's taken anything that he can use, probably blacksmithing equipment as well. He also indicates that he is going to destroy this ironworks, and if for no other reason, because of atrocities similar to this that have been going on in the South. So there's a little bit more foreshadowing for General Early, who's going to come into a play in the next year, the following year in Chambersburg. Okay, Sweeney, the manager, was begging and pleading with Early, don't burn this down. It's not viable. It's not really making money. Thaddeus Stevens is just trying to keep people employed and keep food on their table. And Jubal Early said, that is not the way Yankees do business. And I would hang Thaddeus Stevens on the spot if he were here right now. So with that, Early applied the torch. His men on the following day began to apply the torch and destroyed the Caledonia Ironworks. Uh, he did break the windows out of the out of the housing units that the, the employees and their families lived in, but he didn't burn them. But he did destroy uh, the, the, the rolling mills and the forges and the foundries and everything else of value. And with that, uh, the smoldering remains would be there for the remainder of the Army of Northern Virginia to witness and see as they passed through. Approximately 200 to 250 people left unemployed because of that. So. More or less, we now have the bulk of Lee's army shifting to the Gettysburg area, moving to the east. So let's kind of wrap up these initial Confederate movements through Chambersburg. And let's kind of talk about the rear guard that's going to be there. And then it's kind of the final phases of, con of the Confederates moving through Chambersburg during this part of the campaign. Okay, with, with General Lee's decision to begin concentrating his forces around Cashtown, A.P. Hill is going to pull up camp, which, by the way, interestingly enough, was partially made in the fields surrounding Allendale, General Crawford's home. And Crawford, who had been wounded at the Battle of Antietam, was convalescing at home when he was told that the Confederates were approaching. And just like Thaddeus Stevens, Crawford found it best to get uh, to make himself scarce and get out of Dodge, if you will. So he, he left just in time. But one of the humorous stories is that one of the staff officers was uh, of A.P. Hill was approached by General Crawford's father with a complaint that they had dined on one of his prized peacocks. So how true that is, I don't know. It's just one of those kind of fun stories. And with that, Hill is now moving eastward. Longstreet is now striking their tents from around Chambersburg and moving eastward as well. 
Lee will finally be moving out of Messersmith's woods after being there for several days. And again, Longstreet being the last of the Confederate forces in that area, waiting for John M. Bowden to arrive, leaves General Pickett in Chambersburg as the rear guard. Pickett is instructed to wait there until Imboden relieves him. But one of the last things that General Pickett does before leaving Chambersburg is apply the torch to the newly rebuilt Cumberland Valley Railroad facility. So again, is this foreshadowing of another fire in the Chambersburg area? You decide for yourself, but the Cumberland Valley Railroad is hit again for the second time in as many years, wiping out the facility. Uh, with that, General Pickett begins to move eastward. Of course, we know the story from there, how he arrives too late to really be of any use on July 2nd. Okay, Tracy, so with the departure of George Pickett's division from the Chambersburg area towards Gettysburg, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, the battle will proceed, which yada, 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 one thing leads to the other, and it is Confederate defeat, which is going to cause General Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia to come back to the West. Now, as I've always understood it, the wagon trains coming back out of Gettysburg are specifically told to avoid Chambersburg and take a direct route towards the Potomac and towards uh, Williamsport. So with that as kind of setting the table here, you kind of just want to pick us up and tell us what happens next? Yeah, so with the conclusion of the battle, General Lee decides, well, look, I've been bested here. I need to essentially get my battered army back to the relative safety of Virginia as quickly as I can. And, of course, he uses the the Hagerstown or the Fairfield Road to evacuate the, the livestock and the prisoners and the supply trains and the bulk of his army, artillery, cavalry. But to your point, Jim, yeah, the wagon train of wounded Lee says, look, one thing I don't have that the Yankees have is an endless supply of men. And I need to take care of the men that I can, take them with me. So we're not clear as to exactly how many he would would ultimately try to evacuate the wounded back to uh, back to the south. But he took as many as he could in what we know today as the wagon train of misery or the wagon train of wounded. And that took a separate route. That took essentially following really General Early's route to get to, to Gettysburg. In, in part, he went back over from Cashtown, rallied his men there under the now present John and Bowden, uh, who arrived at, at General Lee's camp on the night of the third and into the fourth, conversed with Lee about uh, how to manage this trip back to Williamsport and ultimately across the river to Virginia. And then Bowden was was handed a satchel with a letter from Lee with explicit instructions. If you are captured, you need to destroy this memo, this letter. This was intended to go to uh, President Jefferson Davis. Uh, with that, General Lee also gave Imboden clear instructions. You're going to be harassed along the way. We need to get these men as quickly and safely back to Virginia as we can. Don't expect any help from us. You can take artillery with you, but you are more or less on your own as your own cavalry demand, but get them back as quickly as you can. So the route that was selected, again, would take them westward out to Chambersburg Pike uh, through Cashtown Pass, 
and most likely the civilian population in the area was now witnessing quite an opposite feeling of emotions from those Confederates that, you know, only a few days earlier were were pretty exuberant about being victorious once again. And now they are battered and beaten, and they begin this long, seemingly painful and torturous trek over the mountain, wagon after wagon of these wounded men, the most severely wounded, and those who could walk would be walking along with the wagons. And of course, what happens? Well, the heavens open up almost as if they are trying to wash the blood from the battlefield and cleanse the area. But now these men in this wagon train of wounded are subjected to this torrential downpour, making their their trek all the all the slower and, and more painful and uncomfortable for them. Over South Mountain they go to Greenwood, where they break off to the southwest on uh, roads that are known as the the Pine Stump Road, and in some places, the Walnut Bottom Road. Uh, some of these roads are still in existence today. And if you can, uh, I have I have access to an 1858 Franklin County map where I can trace it out and see what's there and what isn't. And that's kind of neat to try to relate, you know, as you travel those roads today. But it would take them to New Guilford, modern town of Duffield, Pennsylvania. And New Guilford, if you remember, is where... Uh, Evander Law's brigade bivouacked uh, prior to being called to uh, Gettysburg on day two, where they would assault Little Round Top and Devil's Den. But at New Guilford, they would make a, a turn even more to the southwest and continue on this unimproved road, these country roads, probably in mo- most places just rutted from wagon and livestock use and, and now subjected to all this this rain that's eroding them even more, and they approach this very small village of New Franklin. Now, Jim and Eric, I grew up just minutes from New Franklin on the southeastern side. Now I live minutes on the northwestern side, so it's kind of in the between of where I've always lived. And I would ride bikes as a kid on these roads that were used by the wagon train of wounded, not knowing the history of, of this area. But there's a certain farm just on the eastern side of New Franklin where a farmer by the name of Jacob Snyder lived. And Snyder, his home still lived there. His his barn uh, and outbuildings had been taken down and replaced with modern structures. But the, the large sandstone house still is there. And the story that I get from that comes from Jacob Hoke, a resident of the town of Chambersburg. And might I say, the John Batchelder of Chambersburg, because he would, in fact, converse with some veterans, including Jubal Early, in the years following the war, and compile some information. But in in his book, Jacob Hoke's book, The Great Invasion, he talks about Jacob Snyder and his farm. You know, that night he had already known of this terrible battle that had taken place. And he hears the horses and the and the distur- disturbance outside in the middle of the night. This would be in the middle of July 4th into the 5th. So he goes to his window to see what's going on. And of course, there's the, the thunderous uh, storm going on. And he hears the agony, the cries of pain from these men. And I can only imagine 
kind of shiver does that send up your spine if you're one of the civilians living along the route of this wagon train of wounded? You know, incidentally, it's said that this wagon train was 17 miles long. You know, Jacob Snyder says it was 35. He goes on to try to prove that, but I don't buy into it. I think it was closer to 17. But regardless, it is miles and miles of pain and agony. And I can only imagine being a civilian who is living along that road. It takes 10 hours for that wagon train to pass your house. What you must have experienced and heard and saw. And we talk about, you know, the harvest of death, death photos and the agony and things around the battlefield. It's not just limited to the 6,000 acres we know as a Gettysburg National Military Park. It extends much further than that. And Jacob Snyder would light a lantern in his hallway and walk out to his front porch. And it was almost as if on a summer's evening you turn your light on and your porch light and your back porch. And here come the moths. The Confederates saw that light. And there they went by the droves, towards the Snyder house, in, into his barn, into his hallway, in his parlor, bloodstained, begging for water and mercy. Many of these men just would rather be dropped off in Yankee territory and take their chances than be subjected to this torturous, horrible ride through these wagons. You know, every time one of these wagons with no suspension hits a rock or a pothole, and Pennsylvania was known for potholes then as well, <laughs> This Boom. episode is sponsored by Pindot. <laughs> but, you know, it's just going to send that jolt up through your wounded limb or, or whatever the case may be. And it's just, it's just horrible to think about. And we think about, you know, on every tour, people ask, are there any bodies still on the battlefield? Well, folks, I want to ask, are there any bodies on the wagon train of wounded route? Because we know for a fact that a number were buried on the George Farm and the Snyder Farm outside of New Franklin, Pennsylvania. So the wagon train continues to Marion, Pennsylvania, where it hooks up with the, with the Valley Turnpike. And again, just like those civilians who misled Grumble Jones from burning the bridge, there was a gap in this wagon train. And the Teamsters were saying, which way to Hagerstown and Williamsburg? And those quick-thinking civilians said, that away." pointing northward. So quite a few wagons ended up in Chambersburg, the town where they were supposed to avoid just simply because it's a shortcut cutting off that corner. So when they arrived in Chambersburg, they realized they had been, they had been taken. So now they become prisoners. And hospitals that had already been formed in Chambersburg as a result of the Battle of Antietam and other occupations are now teeming with Confederates. Uh, wounded. The Franklin House, the King Street Academy, the uh, Academy on Queen Street, the Town Hall where Frederick Douglass gave his speech, they all have become hospitals. The remainder of the wagon train of wounded turns southward at Marion, down the Valley Turnpike, passing through Greencastle, ultimately on their way to Williamsport, Maryland. And along the way in Greencastle, there's actually some Union troopers, a small contingent of men there, along with civilians who attack this wagon train with axes and hammers, and they try to break out the spokes of these wagons to slow it down and impede the progress, taking men captured, captive there as well. Uh, this happens uh, one or two occasions, and eventually the wagon train is able to make its way through 
ultimately ending up at Williamsport, which in essence becomes one big hospital. Okay, so with that, the Army of Northern Virginia, the train of misery, we're at Williamsport, dare I say, a vast sea of misery in more ways than one. Uh, But for the most part, we're going to exit the Gettysburg campaign at this point. Obviously, Eric and I plan to do uh, many episodes related to the retreat in the future, Monterey Pass, all these sorts of things that happen after July 3rd are not off the table. But for today, we're now going to fast forward to 1864. So to, to recap, Chambersburg has been occupied in 1862. It's been occupied in 1863. That would be enough for most towns in America, including Gettysburg. But the Chambersburg story is not going to be finished yet as we move into 1864. So 1864, a lot of military movements still going on the table. Grant is going to take command, etc., etc., etc. But Tracy... Tell us, as we start to move towards the close of the war, what does 1864 have in store for Chambersburg? I'm thinking it's going to be a good year. I got my fingers crossed. I'm optimistic. Things are going to turn around. Tell me I'm tr- Tell me I'm right. Being right, I guess, Jim, was going to depend on which side of the Mason-Dixon line you reside. It will be exciting, put it that way. So in 1864, we're going to begin this, this portion of the discussion with what's going on kind of big picture that's ultimately going to bring us back to Chambersburg. And by this point in time, General Ulysses S. Grant is has been named to the command of all the Union armies. And he's going to attach himself with the Army of the Potomac, but he has really a multi-pronged plan for ending this war defeating the various Confederate armies, not the least of which is General Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And some of that involves another campaign, if you will, in the Shenandoah Valley. We've already had Jackson in that valley, along with other people. If you remember, we had Robert Patterson down there. But now we have another Union general. This man, I think, can vie very easily for being the ugliest Union general. Major General David Hunter. And Hunter is given orders by Grant essentially to travel up the valley and lay waste to anything of military importance, military value, foodstuffs, etc. You know, this is similar to what you're going to be picturing Sherman doing on his march. But Hunter is now doing it in the Shenandoah Valley. And what he wants to do, Grant hopes to accomplish by this, is to again continue to diminish the supplies that Lee has at his disposal. Hunter begins to take this a little bit to the extremes. And on June 8th, Hunter and his his force is in and around Lexington, Virginia. And things get a little out of hand. And he's not really keeping uh, good, strong tabs on his army. You know, he doesn't issue the General Order 72 that, that Lee did. Hunter more or less just lets his men go. And they end up looting and and burning VMI, Virginia Military Institute. Well, that's going to have a big effect on the feelings in the South, particularly anybody who went there that's fighting for the South. But he also allows the College of, of Washington, Washington College, next door to VMI, to be looted. 
he doesn't necessarily burn anything, but he, he allows his men to get in there and loot. While they're in Lexington, they also burn the home of former Governor John Letcher. So this is all starting to, to really leave a bad taste in, in everybody's mouths about General Hunter. I mean, what is who's, who's holding him accountable for things? So in response to General Hunter's escapades, General Lee sends none other than his old bad man, Jubal Early, to confront Hunter and to deal with him. Drive him out of the area. Let's let's you know put the brakes on Hunter. So as as early it begins to approach Hunter in the Shenandoah Valley, Hunter realizes, hey, I'm low on my own supplies, but more than that, I'm outnumbered. So Hunter just you know wisely retreats, trying to get out of the line of fire, so to speak. And with that, General Early says, well, okay, desired effect so far. I'm going to take a different route now. And Early makes his way up the up the Shenandoah Valley ultimately confronting Lew Wallace at the Battle of Monocacy and eventually ending up on the doorstep of Washington, D.C. at Fort Stevens. Early probably didn't wake up that morning saying, I'm going to ultimately kick Hunter out of the valley and end up outside of D.C. This is just how it began to play out. But while Early is doing these other things, Hunter reappears on the scene, this time at Charlestown, West Virginia where he begins to pillage and burn again. And in fact, Hunter burns the home of Edmund Lee, who is a distant relative of General Lee. He also burns the home of Andrew Hunter. Wait a minute, any relation there? David Hunter, Andrew Hunter? Andrew Hunter is the first cousin of David Hunter. They were so close before the war, David Hunter, the general, had given his cousin Andrew a ring. Well, they burned his house now, and took him into custody. He's still wearing that ring. Andrew Hunter had been in, in Virginia politics, Southern politics, and I guess the general took offense to that. And this now became, you know, another example of how the Civil War was brother fighting brother, right? So now he burned his, the home of his own cousin. Well, again, Early gets wind of this and says, look, enough is enough. We need to put an end to this once and for all. So Lee had given Early instructions to try to handle this, and Early decides to implement some type of restitution, some type of, of retaliation. Look, you're not getting the word that we're, we mean business, and this isn't okay. Burning houses, private citizens' homes and such, it's not okay. So Early pulls aside a man named General John McCausland, sometimes known as Tiger John. McCausland is now essentially part of Early's command. McCausland has about 1,800 men in his cavalry brigade, actually two brigades. Uh, it will be his own brigade plus the brigade of Bradley T. Johnson. Harry Gilmore is in there as well, Major Gilmore. But Jubal Early is now giving McCausland instructions of how he wants to give some type of, of retaliation for these, what he considers, war crimes. General Early more or less said, I came to the conclusion that it was time to open the eyes of the people of the North to this enormity by an example in the way of retaliation. So clearly, he has something in mind. He calls McCausland into his camp and gives him instructions. Simply, you are to go to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Why Chambersburg? Well, it was accessible for one reason. It's close enough to the Mason-Dixon line that it's easy in and out. 
Jeb Stewart proved it. Lee's Army proved it. Easy access in and out. And you are to, while in Chambersburg, issue a tribute, a ransom, if you will. And this is for $100,000 in gold or $500,000 in Yankee greenbacks. If the town, the community, cannot come up with that ransom money, you are to burn the town. Now, it's, it's my opinion that Early has informed McCausland that the town is to be burned anyway. Early doesn't end with the destruction and the ransom of the town of Chambersburg. He also gives clear instructions to McCausland to continue to the west, recross the Potomac River into Maryland, continue westward, lay as much waste to the coal fields in Cumberland, Maryland as you can. You can ransom that town as well if you like, if you have an opportunity to do that. Also, lay waste to as much of the B&O Railroad in that area as you can. So clearly this was more than just Chambersburg. This was a, a larger campaign, albeit a very rapid and fast-moving hit-and-run type of campaign. So now we have the stage set, and McCausland has his orders. So as we look at Early's decisions here, we can see it certainly being a very punitive retribution, if you will. But also there is a military value to this because if you damage the logistical means of Union forces getting troops and supplies from Pennsylvania into the Shenandoah Valley, it's certainly going to make Early's life a lot easier in that area as he's trying to operate against Union forces there, which, as we see by the summer and fall of 1864, in some respects, the key area of action in Virginia shifts to the Shenandoah Valley. You've got the armies kind of stuck at Petersburg, but really the action then shifts to the valley itself. So, you know, a lot of interesting activity that's playing a role there. It's not just, I think, early burning Chambersburg to burn Chambersburg. There is a logistical backing behind it, no matter how ugly it really is. So with that, let's get McCausland making his way towards Chambersburg. And and conveniently for McCausland, Stewart's already mapped out this route for him. He's essentially going to follow Stewart's route of 1862, crossing the Potomac River near Clear Spring at McCoy's Ferry, and from there, from there proceeding to Mercersburg. So before we get McCausland too close to Chambersburg, we need to say, wait a minute, what happened to the Department of the Susquehanna? Well, it's still in existence, and Darius Couch is in Chambersburg with a few men. He has maybe 45 with him, no, and, and that may swell to about 100, but certainly no more than that. Chambersburg, for uh, the importance laid on it by, by Governor Curtin, has certainly not been defended as it could have been. So Darius Couch has about 45 men that arrive in Chambersburg from Carlisle, and these are members of the 6th U.S. Cavalry. So they are regulars, but there are a minimal number of them. These men make their way through Chambersburg to the west, anticipating what's going on, because there are reports coming in. Hey, the Confederates are, are active again. They're moving. We need to try to predict what's going on and at least slow down their movements. So these men from the 6th U.S. Cav arrive in Mercersburg, and it's dark by this time. It's the evening of July 28th when McCausland arrives there. And the lead elements of McCausland's men will arrive in the dark in Mercersburg and be fired upon, almost like an ambush by these men of the 6th. Certainly the men of the 6th know they're outgunned, they're outnumbered, and they are just a hit and run themselves. And they begin to pull away. 
back to the northeast, hitting the uh, route, modern Route 30, the wagon road east-west at St. Thomas, just as Stewart did. And he begins to move the 6th U.S. back to a closer proximity just to the west of Chambersburg on the heights. Here we go, talking about the high ground again, Fairground Hill, you know, watching the roadway, waiting for McCausland's men to approach. McCausland arrives in Mercersburg and continues to push his men northward. And while this is going on, McCausland sent a detachment under Major Harry Gilmore towards Hagerstown immediately after crossing the Potomac River. Why? As a diversion. He wants to try to make Hagerstown seem like it's the target. At the same time, Early is across the river, moving troops around back and forth, again playing into that grand scheme of diversion. Hagerstown's what we're after here. McCausland continues through Mercersburg towards St. Thomas, where he meets that east-west route as well, and turns eastward towards Chambersburg. Somewhere in the wee hours of the morning of July 30th, the men of the 6th U.S. Cavalry have posted a position on the, on the hill overlooking uh, Chambersburg, facing to the west, and they have been able to get uh, one cannon. They have one gun from the Battery A 1st New York Light, and they have it posted in the middle of the road facing westward. And as the Confederates begin to approach, these men are, are tired and many of them nodding off in their saddles, you know, in the, in the morning somewhere around 3 a.m. And the alarm clock goes off for them in the, in the fashion of canister rounds being fired. This cannon begins firing, lighting up the sky, lighting up the roadway. And the men of the 6th U.S. begin firing as well. Again, knowing that they cannot hold off for very long. They do the best they can. They do their best, John Buford, and hold off those Confederates for almost two hours. Keep a clear eye. Keep a clear eye, that's right. And fall back finally after realizing as the sun comes up, they're going to be flanked. So they, they limber up their single cannon and saddle up their men and make their way back through Chambersburg. What they have bought is enough time for General Couch to load up all of the headquarters, information, supplies in the warehouses, etc., on the train cars, on the rail cars, to have them shipped to Harrisburg for safety. While that's going on, the civilians in Chambersburg said, not again. Right? Not again. What's going on? They're loading up all the government things again. Maybe we better take note. Okay, so some of the merchants began unloading their store shelves and loading up as much as they can on the rail cars or their wagons and, and moving them out of the area. The bank did as well. The Chambersburg Bank, diagonal across from, from the uh, courthouse in the center of town, wheeled its large safe full of money, all the money in the town for the most part, wheeled it out into the square onto a wagon, transported it to the Cumberland Valley Railroad, where they loaded it into a boxcar and shipped it north. By that time, Confederates are knocking on the door. They are loading up their men along Fairgrounds Hill to the west of town. And they have as many as six artillery pieces with them. And I have read that they awakened the community by firing the artillery, sort of a bow shot, I guess, across the town. And there's some 
question as to how many rounds were fired. I have read one, I've read six. Regardless, it served the, the intended purpose. It got the intention of the residents. Now left defenseless yet again. Third time in three years. The Confederates began to make plans. And at this time, General McCausland has made his headquarters, a temporary headquarters at the Henry Greenewalt farm, just behind his artillery line on Fairgrounds Hill. And early in the morning of July 30th, McCausland begins to lay out his plans to his officers. Well, what do you mean lay out his plans? Don't they know why they're there? Well, the answer to that is no. McCausland was really the only person that knew why they were there. And in the parlor of the Henry Greenewalt farm at dawn on July 30th, about a mile west of Chambersburg, McCausland begins giving those plans for the ransom of the town and the ultimate burning of the town. Many of his officers hearing this for the first time are both outraged and just concerned. This is not who we are. Mrs. Greenewald overheard this conversation and would relay it in her diary and letters later on that a number of Confederate officers were opposed to this and didn't want any parts of it. But McCausland was determined, and he was ready to go on with it. That same time, dawn of July 30th, in Chambersburg itself, the citizens are probably, you know, they're already up. They're stirring. They know something's going on. They've already heard the cannons report and the, and the shots being fired over the town. Their immediate concern is probably just safety for themselves, for their families, for their homes, and ultimately for their businesses and, and community, and hoping that nothing more becomes of this occupation than the previous two. Dawn of July 30th, 1864. This time, we're outside of Petersburg, Virginia. There had been a mine dug by former Pennsylvania coal miners, reaching several hundred yards under the Confederate lines. And it was packed with black powder intended to explode and create a very large breach in order for the Union troops to pour into some of those troops that were slated to be the first into what ultimately became the Battle of the Crater were from the 2nd Pennsylvania Heavy Artillery. Initially stationed in the defenses of Washington, D.C., they recently were pulled away from there to supplement the infantry line outside of Petersburg. These men were concerned about what lay in store for them rushing into this onslaught, into this crater, many of them unaware of what was just about to happen in their hometown of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. So shortly after that artillery firing and McCausland had given his orders, portions of the 8th and 36th Virginia dismounted. Remember, these are all cavalrymen. So they dismounted, they marched into the town while additional cavalry was sent around the town to block the exits. A soldier out of uniform, William Corkusberger, he was actually on the staff of General Couch. He remained behind to gather up some papers. So he was out of uniform and he was an eyewitness. So we have some uh, eyewitness accounts from him. And he said, they then entered by almost every alley and every street by small squads prior to the advance of the main body, which came up directly in the rear. So General McCausland then arrived in Chambersburg. He gave his ransom note to one of his adjutants who was in charge of presenting this to the town. With that, McCausland went into the Franklin Hotel. It's adjacent to the 
Bank of Chambersburg on the southwest corner of the town square. And in the Franklin Hotel, which incidentally had been used as a hospital for the previous two summer campaigns, was now where McCausland decided to have breakfast. And after eating, he returned back to the square and found that although the ransom note had been delivered, there was no response to it other than, we can't meet it. The town cannot meet this ransom. $100,000 in gold or $500,000 in greenbacks or the town would be burned? That's absurd. Nobody would believe that this is going to happen. Why would they do it? And the rationale was given about hunters' escapades in the valley. And the citizens simply responded with, certainly for a half dozen homes being burned, you're not going to burn a whole town. Benjamin Schneck was a pastor in town. He lived on Lincoln Way, modern Lincoln Way, just about two blocks from the courthouse. And he wrote an extensive set of letters afterwards to a family member that would really chronicle these events. And I draw heavily from him. So I'm going to read a few of his quotes because what do we look for as guides? Primary sources, eyewitness accounts. Benjamin Schneck was certainly that. The citizens stated that it was utterly impossible to pay the sum named in either gold or currency and that the demand could not be made in good faith. They further remonstrated against the monstrosity of burning an entire town of 6,000 inhabitants in retaliation for the six or eight homes named. So most town people really didn't believe that the Confederates were serious. You know, they've been threatened by Jenkins the year before. Give us what we want or we're going to burn your town. This is simply a, a, a rerun of that. McCausland decided finally somewhere close to 7, 7.30 in the morning. There's no way they're going to meet this demand. They've already said, look, the bank's been cleaned out. We've had men go in there. There's no safe. It's gone. Let's get on with this. So with that, McCausland gave the order. Let's fire the town. While waiting for this to occur and while waiting for the town's response, the soldiers began to roam freely around the area breaking into some of the inns and the taverns and the drugstores, finding alcohol. Most of these men hadn't had much to eat that morning, so an empty stomach, alcohol, guess what? This is going to get ugly fast. McCausland was appealed to by Bradley Johnson, one of his uh, brigadiers, to relent or at least give the citizens more time. But McCausland was determined to carry this out immediately. So with that, McCausland gave the orders, and another one of these stories, we can't really pinpoint how accurate it is, but it's one of those kind of humorous stories, as humorous as it can be under the circumstances, of course. Hugh A. Sparks, Company F, 37th Virginia, has been given credit with starting the first fire simply because of his name. And Benjamin Schneck will go on to relay how this firing of the town began. A squad of men would approach a house, break open the door, and kindle a fire with no other notice to the inmates except to get out of the way as soon as they could. In many cases, 5, 10, 15 minutes were asked in order to secure clothing and personal belongings, which were refused. Many families escaped with only the clothing they had on and such as they could gather up in their haste. In many cases, they were not even allowed to take these out, but were threatened with instant death if they did not cast them to the side. Here we have these men, many of them inebriated, starting fires, just 
essentially not even giving the civilian population an opportunity to get their personal, the most beloved and personal belongings. They just would throw piles of furniture and carpet and clothing in the middle of a room and light it and then go on to the next home. The first building that was fired, the courthouse. A roll, a barrel of kerosene was located. They rolled it into the corner stairway of the courthouse and lit it on fire. Many of the Confederates, now I, I, I am a, a firm believer in giving credit where credit's due. So many of the Confederates who were opposed to this burning did try to help people. They tried to gather belongings and get them out of the house, at least give them an opportunity to gather things for themselves. And to McCausland's credit, the men who really didn't want to participate in this, he put on guard duty. He didn't force them to do it. So these could have been some of the individuals who, you know, were helping the civilian population. John Shryrock was a bookseller. He had a store uh, on the southeast corner of the square. And he says this, bundles were fired upon women's backs. Ladies were forced to carry back into houses articles of clothing they had saved from the flames. Drunken wretches danced upon the furniture and articles of value of an ornament. Women's person were searched in the most undecent manner, and oaths and foul language abounded. So, you know, you get the you get the impression that this is really becoming chaotic. We're going to have these civilians running and screaming and running for their lives while the men, drunk or not, are running into the homes and setting fires. It's chaos, pure chaos. In another isolated incident, Captain Frederick Smith of McCausland's staff was sent out on a mission explicitly to burn Norland, A.K. McClure's home. So McClure, again, made himself scarce. He wasn't there, but his wife Matilda was there in the home. Matilda understood what was going on. She had some warning, and she simply said to Smith, if you're going to burn my house, the sooner you do it, the better. Well, some of the people with Smith said, look, just give us a few minutes. And they actually helped Matilda carry some priceless family heirlooms out of the house before Smith himself helped to burn New Orleans. Interestingly for you Gettysburg people, Frederick Smith was a son of William Extra Billy Smith. It always comes back, doesn't it? Back in Chambersburg, a man that I had re- mentioned earlier, Jacob Hoke, he was a merchant. Uh, his home was above his store, and it was two buildings from the courthouse. It was actually adjacent to the town hall. He remained in his home as long as he could, and he relayed this. A man came to his front door of his establishment and unbuckled his sword and put it in the house. He was disgusted at the scene before him. This was a Confederate officer. It was found afterwards in the ruins. At the door, I found the officer previously referred to weeping bitterly. So there was some remorse in some of these men. I've not been able to find out what happened to that sword. I'd love to. If if Hope kept it or, or not, I don't know. In another incident on the southern side of the town that was already ablaze, Major A. Calder Bailey, he was the adjutant of the 8th Virginia. Well, he had been drinking. One of the one of the rebels that was found the alcohol in some of the taverns and hotels, and he became a little inebriated, and he wandered away from the group of men that was, he was working with to light the fires. And in his loneliness or his absence of anyone else, he was confronted by civilians. And some people may think, why didn't the civilians fight back? Well, here's a case where they did. 
Bailey was shot and wounded. He was sought refuge by running into one of the burning structures. He tried to wrap himself in a blanket so Bailey couldn't stand the heat, and he ran back out into the street with his hands up, begging for mercy. You know, don't shoot me. Too late, man. You're already burning our town. And the civilians shot him and killed him right there in the street. There's another incident where a couple of uh, rebels ran into a local drugstore. And out as they were going in, the owner ran out. And in his quick mind, he locked the doors. This place was already burning. Well, when they came back out, the rebels tried to break the door down again. They were shot and killed. So there is a few instances where the civilians left on their own or trying to defend their town. Um, the corpse of at least one person who had recently died, not from the Confederates in any fashion, was left in a burning building. And civilians ran in to retrieve that corpse, and they took her out and buried her hastily in the back garden. Benjamin Schneck, Reverend Schneck, went on to say this, The day was sultry and calm, not a breath stirring, and each column of smoke rose black, straight and single, first one, then another, and another, until the columns blended and commingled, and then one vast and lurid column of smoke and flame rose perpendicular to the sky and spread out into a vast crown, like a cloud of sackcloth hanging over the doomed city. Whilst the roar and the surging and crackling and crash of falling timbers and walls broke upon the still with a fearful dissonance, and the screams and sounds of agony of burning animals, hogs, and cows, and horses made the welkin horrid with sounds of woe. It was a scene to be witnessed and heard once in a lifetime. So from that, we understand, you know, they allowed, the rebels allowed the people to get out of their homes. But these homes and, and the merchants and the buildings at the stores are located right along the streets. And what is behind the homes in the center of the blocks, the barns, the stables, the animals were not as fortunate. And we have a firsthand account of the horrible screams and cries of those burning animals. Folks, this is just horrible. This is horrible. It's, it's, it's horrible to imagine. Crumbling walls, stacks of chimneys, Smoking embers and all that remain of the once elegant and happy homes was all that could be seen. With the town in flames, McCausland says, look, I know there are Yankees in the area. We need to get out of here as quickly as we can. So by 11 o'clock, the town is engulfed in flames and McCausland is exiting off to the west. With McCausland leaving the town, and we're going to circle back and talk about the aftermath of this burning what it meant uh, with the destruction, both financially and, and physically, the damage done. But we want to just take a look at any other Union troops that may have been in the area that, that possibly could have come to the rescue and avoided this tragedy. Brigadier General William Avril was camped north of Greencastle. He was actually posing early on the other side of the Potomac River. Remember, they tried to make that feint towards Eggerstown. So Averill's watching those men there. He had about 2,500 men with him. And over the night of July 29th into the 30th, General Couch had sent three messages repeatedly, one after the other, looking for Averill. Okay, they're looking for this guy saying, look, we have rebels in Pennsylvania. Where are you? He couldn't be found. He left his headquarters and was finally found sleeping by a telegraph operator trying to give this message to him. 
And with that, Averill simply said, I'll respond in the morning. Well, by that time, it's too late. So here's a big, a big lack of communication, a lack of taking on the responsibility by someone who was in another command, really, and, and felt he didn't have the responsibility to, to answer to this. But look, you're fighting for the same goal. You're fighting for the union here. You're fighting for Pennsylvania. Let's take care of this. But ultimately, he decided not to. When he was made aware of what was going on, the sun came up, probably from Greencastle, only about 10 miles away, he could probably see that black smoke rising in the distance. What he did was saddle up his men and go across country. And by my counts, he retraced some of the same routes that the wagon train of wounded took, heading up towards Greenwood on the, on the Gettysburg-Chambersburg Pike. He was kind of playing the odds here. Look, Stuart exited Chambersburg that direction in 62. Lee's army did in 63. I'm counting on whoever is in the, in the town of Chambersburg now to exit the same way. He guessed wrong. He gambled and guessed wrong. With that, when he was made aware, he saddled his men once again and went tearing westward through Chambersburg, the town still burning. Uh, we have reports of his men shielding themselves, getting close to the necks of their horses, putting their, their jackets or their, their tunics up over their faces to shield themselves from the flames as they ride through town, westward, exiting, trying to catch up with the already departed McCausland. Well, they actually catch up to them over the mountain in McConnellsburg. There's a brief skirmish there before Averill calls off the pursuit for the time being simply because his horses are pretty much spent after chasing for this fast. So McCausland continues. Remember, he has orders from early to go to Cumberland, disrupt the coal there so that it's not available for the for the railroad and for the for the Federal Navy, disrupt the B&O Railroad, uh, that sort of thing. And McCausland is trying to do that, but he's unaware of a Union Army presence in Cumberland. So McCausland ends up cutting back across Maryland through the Potomac River uh, a little prematurely, never quite arriving in Cumberland. And with that, McCausland thinks that he is hopefully out of danger. And, and close to two weeks later, he is encamped around Moorefield, West Virginia. And this is where Yankees, including Averill's command, finally catch up with him. And they attack him in the middle of the night and really rout McCausland's forces there. McCausland escapes. He's not killed. But his force is really routed there in a little bit of, of restitution for burning Chambersburg. So I actually find Tiger John McCausland kind of to be an interesting guy. Um, you know, a couple factoids on him as we kind of wrap up his story. Um, he ultimately did face arson charges for the burning, but is going to subsequently be pardoned by Grant afterwards. Uh, but McCausland, as Tracy said, survived the campaign, actually died on his farm in 1927. And depending on what source you read, uh, that could make him the last fully confirmed Confederate general to die. So think of that. And then just one other interesting factoid. Eight years after McCausland's death, his son Sam shot and killed World War I Medal of Honor recipient Chester West 
who was working as a farmhand on Sam's farm and uh, might have been fighting over General McCausland's gun. So I know you have an interest in World War One and that sort of thing. Uh, the son, Sam McCausland, was convicted of second-degree murder for murdering a World War One Medal of Honor recipient. So, you know, Tracy, I'm thinking this McCausland family, just maybe a bunch of ne'er-do-wells, you know, kind of thing. But in all seriousness, as we now sort of talk about the aftermath and the legacy, one of the things I'd be interested to cover, if you could, Sherman, still hated in the South today, scorched earth, burning of Atlanta, all that stuff. In the aftermath, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about, too, how people today in the area kind of remember both Early and McCausland, or do they? You know, is this something that the, the locals of, of the Valley have kind of moved on from? So I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, Jim, you know, there there still is an annual commemoration of the burning of Chambersburg. What some people may term as, as a poor name, it's called Chambers Fest. And, you know, whether it's whether it's a good idea or not to, to, to call it a fest, you know, that's that's left to the individual. It but was a fest it for McCausland. A, it was a fest for McCausland, yeah. Can I say Singles Mania too? Singles Mania, yeah, Chambers Maybe. Fest. But it is a commemoration. We remember what happened. And, you know, even though McCausland was pardoned, he was never forgotten or forgiven by the residents of Chambersburg. And, and many circles would refer to him as the Hun of Chambersburg. So what did actually became of this? What happened? What was burned? What was destroyed? Well, the courthouse was fully destroyed. A Methodist church, there were two churches destroyed, one that was located immediately behind the courthouse, and another one that was deliberately targeted by the Confederates simply because it had a black congregation. Other churches were spared simply because they were out of the line of fire, so to speak. And those were three churches that Benjamin Chambers had actually given land to to form those congregations. Those churches still in existence today. 537 buildings were destroyed. 278 houses, 271 barns and stables. The approximate total real estate value was $713,294. Those are 1864 dollars. Personal property added another $915,137. So the, the total comes out to over $1.6 million in physical property and private property damage, personal real estate, etc. If you use an inflation calculator, that equates to uh, over $26.5 million today, 2021. So it was a lot. Significant damage. 2,000 people left homeless. One civilian death. That was Daniel Parker. He was a former slave, and he didn't die from the rebels. He died of a heart attack. Interestingly, one area of the town was spared. That was the Cumberland Valley Railroad. After being burned for two years, two consecutive years by the raids of, of the Confederates, the railroad decided, hey, it's not worth rebuilding again. So there was nothing left to burn, just the tracks, etc. So there was no intentional going over there and burning structures. Some of the privately owned warehouses that had been reconstructed around the railroad that had not been burned became shelters for the homeless. One of the interesting stories that came out of this was there's a Masonic temple in Chambersburg, and it's one of the oldest in the, in the United States, from what I understand. Uh, when a Confederate soldier approached it, this soldier apparently was a Mason, and he actually placed guards around the temple, the, uh, the lodge, to prevent anyone from burning it. 
and that building can still be seen in some of the post-battle photographs. It still stands and it is in use today. Uh, the county jail was spared. There were a few houses on South Main Street that just didn't ignite. They were spared as well. In all, there were approximately 12 square blocks of the core of the town of Chambersburg completely destroyed. Benjamin Schneck went on to say this, never was there so little saved at such an extensive fire. 69 pianos were consumed, the most sacred family relics, keepsakes, and portraits of deceased friends, old family Bibles, handed down from past generations, and the many objects imparting a priceless value to a Christian home, and which can never be replaced, were all destroyed. Shortly after the destruction of the town, and when I say shortly, I'm talking within a couple of weeks, a couple of photographers arrived, one from Carlisle, uh, one from in Maryland somewhere, and they began to take a number of photographs of the town. And clearly in these photographs, you can see the cleanup and reconstruction has already started. Piles of bricks in the streets. But you can see the the columns of the bank of Chambersburg. You can see the remnants of the Franklin Hotel that was a hospital for both Union and Confederate troops. And also where just hours before its destruction, McCausland had breakfast. We have an image of Jacob Hoke's store, the corner of the store, and just to the right of that, the corner of the town hall where Frederick Douglass had spoken. And beyond that, the front columns of the destroyed Franklin County Courthouse. Now, interestingly enough, Ted Alexander, who was a local historian and author, had done research and found out that the columns to the side entrance of the courthouse weren't damaged beyond repair. And they were salvaged and used in today's modern courthouse. It still stands today. So that's kind of a neat reminder of Chambersburg's past. With that, Chambersburg tries to rebuild. With the war coming to an end, the railroad is still there. But Chambersburg really doesn't regain the the thriving growth that it had pre-war. Many of the individuals who had lost everything consumed by this fire never returned. Uh, businesses, you know, had to shutter their doors, so to speak, because they could not operate anymore. But the town did survive, and it goes on today, still being the seat of Franklin County. Wow. And with that, we're going to kind of bring a close to the the history of Chambersburg as it relates to the uh, the American Civil War and specifically these three Confederate occupations. Eric and I, we both have an affinity for Jubal Early, so we're going to come back to Jubal Early on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast at a later date. Suffice to say, he ended up in Mexico and then Canada for a little while, potentially fleeing from what could have been construed as war crimes. But again, that's a podcast for another episode. So in closing, Tracy, we want to thank you. I found it really interesting. I learned a lot of stuff over the course of these two parts that I did not know. And as businesses rebuilt in Chambersburg, you being one of the a member of one of the oldest current Chambersburg families, uh, not only are you a licensed battlefield guide, and not only do you give tours in the town of Chambersburg itself, but the least we can do is give you an opportunity to uh, tell us a little bit about the business that you own in Chambersburg today. 
Thank you, Jim and Eric. Once again, uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to join you for one of these podcasts. This is this is uh, very, very uh, humbling for me to reach out to a worldwide audience. With regards to, to the business that you referred to, um, I am the second generation owner of Franklin County's oldest sign business. Uh, my father started the business in 1948 after leaving the Marine Corps, fighting in the South Pacific in World War II. And he came and began to work at a local sign company and then branched off in 1948 to start his own business. And he is self-trained in a lot of a lot of aspects of that business. But we are going full blast, full steam ahead. We are, uh, as I mentioned, the oldest full-service commercial and electric sign company in the county. And that simply means we do lighted signs and non-lighted signs. We do vehicle lettering and graphics. And we do have a, di- a guide discount for reproducing maps and images that guides may need for tours as well. We also do flags and flagpoles. And that may be something that interests the listeners more than signs do, because we can ship flags and flagpoles just about everywhere. We have a full assortment of flags as well. And uh, for more information, the easiest thing would be check out the website, www.bearsign.com. That's B-A-E-R-S-I-G-N.com. Wow, that was incredible. A lot of great detail, as we say, a deep dive into a area that really the Civil War was pivotal to in its history. So with that, I think we will put a bow on this episode, as we like to say. As always, follow us on our social media that we mentioned earlier in the show, as well as in the show notes. Also, if you can give us a donation, all the money that is donated to us goes to keeping this show free, which is ultimately the goal to give what we feel is some of the very best Gettysburg content out there to the masses, to all the interested folks, at no charge. And along those lines, visit our new store, the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. Kind of the same idea. Proceeds from the store help keep the show free, but you get some cool and you get some fun podcast swag in return, whether it's a cool t shirt, coffee mugs, you know, whatever. You got our books. Yes, actually, our books are also. We have written the books. source. You know, I don't think we've ever talked about that on the show, but we in the really event, haven't. I know, really I haven't. know. Actually, I have to profess that uh, our books have been collectively a hot seller at the store during our initial 30 days or so of launch. Yeah, I have. Well, I not sold this many books in a long time. So thank you to all the super fans that have done that. I greatly appreciate you and the brave men of Newport Barracks. Yeah. Appreciate it. Brigadier General James Martin, the hero of not only the Battle of Contreras, but of Newport Barracks. Very good. Yeah. So Eric's book is there. My three books are there. Again, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all that stuff. Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. One word. I know it's a mouthful, but if you remember that, you'll go to our store and you'll know you'll be shopping with the finest online high quality that drop shipping can offer today. So thanks everybody for your support and go check out the store. All right. So with that, we will say goodbye until next time where we will be coming to you talking about our first live recording ever of the episode, the heel fantasy draft. Jim, let's give listeners just a little bit of uh, insight into what's coming up. 
Well, in the tradition of our Season 2 Fantasy Draft, Eric and I returned for another Fantasy Draft, this time focusing on what we call a heel draft. I'm not going to give away too much. If you're not familiar with the term heel, look it up. You'll start to get familiar and kind of get an understanding of what Eric and I are trying to do as we kind of round out Season 3 and maybe a little bit more of a fun and lighthearted manner. But we had a live event at Getty's Gear. We had super fans and friends and listeners in the audience, and Eric and I will both draft a heel team, which basically is the worst fantasy army that we could both come up with. So listen, you'll hear our analysis, you'll hear some audience reaction, and then you decide which team do you like the least. I can't wait. That was a blast, our first live performance. It really was. Yeah, and it was great to see so many people come out and support us, and I think they had a lot of fun, so if they didn't, some of them drank a lot, so, you know, hopefully that that compensates. Or just blame it on the booze. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, the heel draft, that will be what we think is going to round out Season 3 of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. All right, folks, so once again, thank you for listening, and thank you for all of your support. This has been the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Take care, and remember Chambersburg.